The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. It's a delight to get to come and continue our series on the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. And uh, as I was stepping up this morning in the early service, uh, a mnemonic device occurred to me while I was stepping up, and um, I thought I would share it with you. Just in case you're, you're losing track of the churches that we've already looked at, um, here it is. Use it as you will. Okay, uh, now keep in mind, the first letter is what's important for the church. So, um, every saint pray, uh, pleases the Lord, persevering long. <laughs> I got to laugh, yeah. <laughs> um, every saint pleases the Lord, persevering long. So just use that uh, as you will. It might help you keep the, keep the seven churches in order. Anyway, uh, this morning we've come to Sardis, uh, a lesser-known church. Um, and uh, Jesus' letter to the church in Sardis starts in chapter 3, uh, and it's verses 1 through 6. So go ahead and turn there, and we'll read that together. Verse 1, chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write... The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, gracious and mighty God, we thank you. We thank you and bow before you this morning. We thank you for your preservation of this word to us. We ask, Lord, that you will bless us this morning, and that you by your Spirit will open our eyes and ears to its message. Give us insight, Lord, as we reflect upon it. Soften our hearts so that your word might penetrate deep within us and change us, that we might walk genuinely, sincerely in the step with the Spirit and in his power. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, so many of you know uh, that uh, I was a classical teacher for many, many years. And um, 
One of the things that I got to do a lot of as a teacher was read a lot of old stuff. Stuff like Virgil's Aeneid and Caesar's Gaelic Wars, his commentaries on them. But one of, the, one of my favorite things to do was actually, especially with the younger students that I taught, was to read Aesop's fables. Some of you might say Aesop, or some of you might say Aesop. It's okay, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> we read a lot of Aesop's fables, and as I was reflecting on this passage uh, this week, I was reminded of one of his shorter fables. It's the story about the fox and the mask, and maybe some of you know it. It goes something like this. There was this fox who somehow or another managed to make his way into the storage room of a nearby theater. And as he was sniffing around at the various things in it, all of a sudden he noticed that something was staring down at him. A face was staring down at him from a shelf above, and he instinctively shrunk back in fear. And yet he was able to master his fright, and so he approached the face to take a closer look at it, and when he did so, he discovered that it was actually a mask, a stage prop used by the actors to assume a certain role. And so the fox, being such a clever animal, he was relieved, and he turned to the mask, and he said to it, rather philosophically, well, you look very fine. It's a pity you don't have any brains. And the moral, you always got to remember, Aesop has a moral to all of his fables. The moral essentially is masks are the faces of shams. Masks are the faces of shams. They're the disguises of the disingenuous. In other words, it's basically a little story about the vice of hypocrisy. And I hope you can forgive me for using Latin twice in, or Latin twice in two weeks, but Latin dies hard in an old Latin teacher. And there is this wonderfully pithy little phrase, Latin phrase, that captures the virtue of genuinely being something rather than merely appearing to be something. It was the motto of my old school in Atlanta. It's the motto of the state of North Carolina. Some of you all might know it. It's esse quam videri. I put it in the title. Esse quam videri. And it means to be rather than to seem. To be rather than to seem. It's a great little phrase. It underscores the priority of the real over the fake of being genuine rather than being artificial or hypocritical. And, and I think we all intuitively recognize that it's better to actually be the things we claim to be. But if we were simply to change the word order of this phrase, like I've heard Stephen Colbert has done on the set of his show, if we were to change it, so that it read, videre quam esse. We'd end up with a perversion of this virtue. We'd end up with to seem rather than to be. And what if 
we didn't just change the word order. But what if we actually lived our lives in a way that suggests it's actually better to appear to be something rather than actually to be something? Well, then we'd prove ourselves to be little more than the masks in Aesop's fable. Shams and disguises. Empty props. Well, friends, I think this is exactly the danger that the Christians in Sardis were facing. And really, I think it's evident right from the beginning when we hear Jesus say to them in the second half of verse 1, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Did you hear that? They had the reputation of being alive. They seemed to be full of life, but that's all it was. Mere appearance, an empty show. And friends, it's because of this hypocrisy that the Lord Jesus had a strong message of rebuke and warning to bring against them. And yet he also had a message of comfort and encouragement to bring to them as well. And you know, the Christians in Sardis, they desperately needed to hear what the Lord had to say to them. And we do too. So why were the Sardians dealing with this? What was going on in Sardis? And what can we learn from what the Lord said to them. Well, I think we should start by uh, learning a bit of the background of the city of Sardis, because uh, it is one of those lesser known cities that we encounter. The city of Sardis was an ancient city. It dated back to the time of David. It was, if we, if we think of the postal route that John is on with these letters, it was about 30 miles or so southeast of Thyatira and about 50 or 60 miles uh, east of Smyrna. It was situated in the fertile Hermes Valley. It had an abundance of natural resources, including gold, which was found in the Pactolus River, which flowed right through its center. And the city itself was situated on a high and steep Acropolis. And it afforded it massive protection against enemy invaders. And that it was so fortified that the phrase to capture the Acropolis of Sardis was a widely used metaphor for achieving the impossible. And so in ancient times, the city of Sardis enjoyed a reputation as a seat of wealth and as an impregnable fortress. And its citizens and rulers alike took great pride and comfort in this reputation. But its reputation would ultimately lead to its ruin. You see, in 546 BC, King Cyrus and the Persians, they were mounting an attack against the city of Sardis. And at the time, the city of Sardis was the capital of the Lydian Empire, whose ruler was King Croesus, and he was living there at the time. And although Croesus knew that the Persians were about to attack, he was confident in Sardis's reputation as an impregnable fortress. And so he failed to set sufficient guard over the city to watch it. And so it happened in winter in 546, in the middle of the night, a lowly Persian soldier was able to scale Sardis's mighty Acropolis, enter the city by stealth, and make way for the city's capture by the Persians. In other words, the great city of Sardis fell because it rested 
in the strength of its reputation and failed to remain watchful. And friends, like the ancient city of Sardis, the church there was in danger of following the same path. You see, the Sardian Christians, they also had a stellar reputation. They were known for being alive. No doubt their neighboring churches saw them as examples of Christian virtue and maturity. We can imagine, for example, that their commitment to coming together on the Lord's Day and celebrating the Lord's Supper, or their services to the poor and the needy, were, or at least had been, sometime in the past, firmly established and had become well-known throughout the region. Perhaps, too, they were admired for their doctrinal fidelity. After all, unlike the other churches we've looked at so far, there's no talk of followers of Balaam or of the Nicolaitans or of Jezebel, and there's no clear hint that their pagan influences had ever taken root in the city of Sardis. And so I, I don't think it's hard for us to imagine how tempting it might have been for them to become puffed up over the years by reports of their exemplary faithfulness and perhaps little by little to begin to put their confidence in their reputation rather than in the sustaining and sanctifying and enlivening power of the Holy Spirit. And in giving into this temptation, I think it would have been all too easy for them simply to slip into spiritual complacency and fail to remain watchful. And friends, in a nutshell, I think this is what was happening. The church in Sardis had begun to rest in its laurels, so to speak. It had become spiritually complacent. It's possible that as a community they were continuing to go through their Christian motions. But if so, that's all they were doing. They were simply going through the motions. Any vestiges of right actions and words had become mere outward displays of devotion and piety. Rather than the blessed fruit of those who are sincerely walking in step with the Spirit. Like those whom the Apostle Paul called lovers of self in 2 Timothy 3.2. They had the appearance of godliness, but they were denying its power. And of course, the Lord Jesus, whom we heard last week described as the one who has eyes like a flame of fire. The Lord Jesus saw right through their facade. And this is why we hear him quickly brush aside their reputation for being alive and call them to repentance with a strong warning, saying to them in verses 2 and 3, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And, you know, I think Jesus' repeated call here to wake up and his threat of his coming against them like a thief in the night if they fail to wake up, I think these would have hit the near-dead Sardians like a thunderbolt. After all, they knew their history. They knew that at the height of its glory, their city had failed to remain watchful and a single Persian soldier managed to penetrate its mighty Acropolis like a thief in the night and orchestrate its ruin. 
And so it's easy to imagine that Jesus' words here would have brought the lingering memories of this failure back into sharp and uncomfortable focus for the Sardians. And it would have been terrifying, I think, for them. And rightly so. After all, the image of the Lord coming like a thief in the night is an image repeatedly used in the New Testament to describe his unexpected coming in judgment. The Apostle Paul draws on it in 1 Thessalonians 5 when he says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But perhaps more significantly, the Lord Jesus himself uses the image later on in the book of Revelation when he says in Revelation 16, 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Brothers and sisters, to be caught unaware and exposed by the sudden coming of our Lord to be found spiritually complacent and unwatchful when he returns. Friends, this is a terrible thing. And Jesus' call here to the church in Sardis to repent should give us pause this morning. After all, it's just as easy for us to slip into spiritual complacency as it was for the Sardians. We can be dutiful in gathering for worship, but really be more interested in others' admiration for our spiritual commitment. We can recite the creeds by heart while training our thoughts on more pressing matters. We can engage in prayer, and we can belt out the hymns even while our hearts remain locked shut to the Spirit's promptings, unmoved by the penetrating gaze of the one who sees in secret. And friends, when we engage the Christian life in this way, when our thoughts and our words and our actions are a mere going through the motions for our own sake and reputation, rather than a vibrant living out the faith with hearts, sincerely open to the Lord's leading and as a genuine expression of our love for him and for his people. Brothers and sisters, when we live like this, our actions are, as one commentator remarks, little more than form without prayer, reputation without reality, outward appearance without inward integrity, show without life. In other words, we resemble the empty prop in Aesop's fable. And like those in Isaiah 29, 13, whom the prophet said merely draw near to the Lord with their mouths and honor him with their lips, we reveal that our hearts are far from him. Brothers and sisters, this grieves. It grieves the Lord. And we need to take his rebuke here to heart. Well, so what's to be done? How are we to wake up and overcome our spiritual complacency. How does the Lord direct us to repent? 
Well, I want you to notice especially what Jesus says to the sardines in verse 3. He says, remember. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Did you hear that? He starts by telling us to remember. And we shouldn't let our familiarity with this simple word dull its significance here. You see, memory, as John Stott insightfully remarks, memory is a precious and blessed gift. Nothing can stab the conscience so wide awake as memories of the past. The shortest road to repentance is remembrance. In other words, Jesus' call for us to remember, it reveals his genuine compassion for his struggling people and his wisdom in setting us on the right path to repentance. And what he's calling us to do here is to reflect back on the simple beauty of the gospel and our reception of him as our savior. In John 5, 24, one of my favorite verses, the Lord says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, but, he, but has passed from death to life. Friends, remember what you received and heard. And he's calling us as well to remember not the artificial, but the genuine life of holiness that we're to live as those who bear his name. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, 8 and 9, that we're to walk as children of light, bearing the fruit of light, which is found in all that is good and right and true. And I think it's significant, given the Lord's repeated call for us to wake up in this letter, that Paul goes on in the same passage to quote the prophet Isaiah saying in verse 14, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Friends, remember, remember what you received and heard. But perhaps especially, I think the Lord is calling us to remember the blessed gift of His Spirit. You see, it's not incidental that in a letter addressed to a church on the brink of death, the Lord introduces Himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. You see, he introduces himself as the one who preserves and animates the church, his bride, and sends forth his life-giving spirit for this purpose. When the Apostle Peter was preaching during Pentecost, he said in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And later, we hear the Apostle Paul remind his readers in 1 Thessalonians 5 that the gospel came to them not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Friends, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of life, as Paul tells us in Romans 8. And it's in him that we live and move and have our being not in our own strength or in reliance upon our own reputations. 
And yet when we fail to abide in him, and when we fail to give testimony to his life-giving power at work within us, we grieve him. And brothers and sisters, we need to remember that in as much as we are genuinely being transformed into the image of our Lord from one degree of glory to another, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we need to remember that this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, remember what you have received and heard. Well, as the Lord brings his message to the Sardians to a close in verses 5 and 6, we hear him once again promise blessed gifts to the one who conquers. How fitting these gifts are. You see, to the one who conquers, to those, to those who remain watchful, the Lord doesn't promise the soiled garments of those who refuse to wake up. Instead, he offers white garments fit for the worthy. He offers them robes, as John later says to us in Revelation 7.14, robes made white in the blood of the Lamb, whose singular worthiness the heavenly chorus prays, saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And to the one who conquers, the Lord doesn't promise his coming judgment. When, as John tells us in Revelation 20, verses 12 and 13, books will be opened and the dead will be judged according to what they've done. No. Instead, the Lord offers the certainty of a name written in the book of life, a name written before the foundation of the world, the gracious gift of the one who, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, chose us in him before the foundation of the world and predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Indeed, to the one who overcomes, to the one who remains watchful, the Lord does not promise his own dreadful denial reserved for those who deny him before men. Instead, he promises to confess his name before his Father and his angels when he returns in glory at the blessed roll call of the firstborn who are, as the writer of Hebrews says, enrolled in heaven. Oh, brothers and sisters, how precious, how precious these promises are. The promises of life given to those who, apart from the grace of God, are dead. The Apostle Peter said to Jesus in John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that? Do you believe that? And if you do, will you join me? And confess your spiritual complacency? Will you return to the Lord in repentance? Brothers and sisters, will you wake up and remember what you received and heard and trust the one who offers you life here today? Oh Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. Let's pray. Almighty God, 
we bow before you, creator of heaven and earth, of all things seen and unseen. We bow before you, praise you, and thank you as the author of life. For you have given those who are dead life by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you, Lord. We ask, Lord, that you will use this message this morning to fortify us, to wake us up, to cause us to walk in newness of life and in step with the Spirit. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.